in Genesis 8, we left our hero Noah in a big box floating in the water, just floating around. And Genesis 8, 1 says, but God remembered Noah. It's kind of interesting. You know, sometimes we feel, feel kind of forgotten by God. Has anybody ever felt forgotten by God? Hello, where are you at? Are you there? Um, my, my youngest likes to hide in the pantry. And he goes, and I think I've told you guys this before, he'll goes, Daddy, Mama, where are you? You know, and he's hiding in the pantry. Well, sometimes we'll just like leave him in there for a little bit. And then he's like, where are you? You know, and that's how we feel with God. God, where are you? And it says, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And the word remembered is not the same way as we use it. It's not like God just forgot and went, oh, yeah, oh, there's Noah still down there. You know, it's not like he did that. He's more like, okay, well, let's, let's deal with the boat now that, that all this other stuff is going on. And this is the same. You know, this is the same with us. The New Testament says that God will remember our sin no more. What it means is he won't use it against us in judgment, okay? He won't hold it over us. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows our ways. He knows our sins. But God deals with us as if we have never sinned. And that's a beautiful thing. Noah spent over a year in the ark, uh, Noah and his family, over a year in the ark. And now it's time for that judgment to end. That, that completeness of, of what God had began uh, just in judging the world for, for its ways. And I imagine that no one in his family felt a little forgotten there floating around. You know, I wonder if any of them were, were seasick. I mean, they don't know if they were seasick. They never went out on the sea before, you know, because um, uh, there was no big, you get that at all. Okay. So you can imagine that. The first few weeks, the, the tragedy of it all and the, ma- the amazement of the situation, that they were, they were saved, happy in that, saved, you know, that, that uh, safety and all that. But then time drug on, the routine of the ark, they, you know, it kind of drug on you a little bit. It kind of, you know, you're like, ah, you know, I can imagine that. And, and we don't know if God talked to them during this time. The scriptures don't allude to that at all. Uh, knowing... Uh, you know, I, I was wondering if they were sitting there going, how long is this going to go on? How long is God going to put me in this situation? How long is God going to allow this to last? And this is how we are. We find ourselves in a, different, a difficult situation. Noah's situation was difficult. All the animals, the ark, all the people wondering what's going to happen when they get out. You know, but our situations are a little different. But we find ourselves in difficult situations thinking, Lord, do you even remember me? I'm crying out to you, and you were silent. How long is this going to go on? Well, the only thing I can tell you is this. God is there. For some reason, we're in the closet going, where are you, God? Thinking they've forgotten me, but God is there. He waits for things on his timing. What God starts he will finish. And we need to remember that. What God starts, he will finish. We need to hold on to that hope. We need to have enough faith to know that what God starts, he will finish. For a year, at least from the scriptures, we see that God was silent. He didn't talk to Noah. I'm sure he would have wrote down the conversations he had one way or the other, but he didn't. And we need to remember that sometimes God is silent for a reason. What should we do? 
Well, we do as Noah did. We go about our godly business in a godly way, and we wait for God to speak. You know, it's not like we're just going to sit down and stop life. No, you keep living life. And then when he does speak, we do exactly what he says. Noah obeyed because that was his lifestyle. We need to start a lifestyle of obeying God. We need to practice obedience. We just can't say, God, I'm back now. Now you need to pick up. You know, I know I took off on you, but we got to pick up right where we left off. And God's like, well, wait a second. We got to build back some trust here. You know, have you ever had that, a friend or somebody that, that went out? On, you got to build that trust back up, you know, or a spouse or something happened and, and it was devastating. You got to build that trust back up, but you got to at least move forward to build that trust. You just can't stay right there. See, when we come barging back in, God wants to see our obedience, especially during the dark hours. If you're wondering where you should be in life, think about the last time that God spoke to you or prompted you, or you felt the Holy Spirit on you, are you still doing that? Or, or did you ever do what God asked you to do? This is what He wants. If He wants you to change, He will tell you to change. But first, He wants you to start practicing obedience where you were at before God will move you on to something else. So God remembered Noah and the animals. And he set a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. And we see wind for the first time mentioned in the Bible, and we, we, don't think, you know, we don't think about anything about it, you know. But wind causes evaporation. Evaporation causes what? Clouds. Clouds cause what? Rain. Well, when they get to, yeah, you know, I understand what I'm saying. And no one is family. No doubt rain kind of brought some anxiety upon them, right? Is this going to happen again? Is this going to happen again? Is it still raining? You can imagine every time it rained, they would think back. But God changed the way the earth was watered at this point. It says in verse 2, Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. So in 150 days after the flood began, the water starts to go down. And 224 days before the, it, it was 224 days before the mountaintops reappeared. Again, this goes way beyond a local flood, like we talked about last week. And uh, verse 4 says, On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, we, again, we believe this is, this is modern day Turkey. So as the mountains reach about 17,000 you know, foot high, as we studied last time, many people have you know, over the centuries, they've seen the ark, brought pieces of the ark. You know, they've seen it around the 14,000 uh, uh, foot level, and the ark was covered inside and outside of tar, so we know, the, uh, you know how it can uh, pre preserved. It was preserved over time, and it has a preservative in it. And coupled that with the mountain being covered with snow and ice most of the time, it helped preserve a lot of it. Uh, Marco Polo, how many of you played Marco Polo in the pool? Okay. He was a real person, okay. Marco Polo... Um, uh, records that he had talked to many people who had seen and boarded the ark. That's pretty cool. Verse 4 says, On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now this is interesting because later in Exodus 12, God said that the seventh month of the uh, civil calendar, in other words, uh, the, you know, the, the, like our Greek calendar, okay, we don't, we don't go on a religious calendar, if you didn't know that. Or actually, we kind of do. It's kind of a, 
If you go back and study the calendar, which I'm don't, not suggesting you do that, uh, a, lot of our, uh, a lot of our calendars based on Roman religious figures, like July and, and other things, and June and so forth. Uh, but we don't technically work on a religious calendar. But God said in Exodus 12 that on the seventh month of the civil calendar would be the first month on their religious calendar year for the Jews. At the time, the children of Israel had two calendars they dealt with. So if you think trying to schedule things now is a nightmare, add another calendar in there that's completely different, okay? So the seventh month became the first month. And we go, well, okay, why is Alan even talking about this? Who really cares? Well, what took place on the 17th day of the first month? Well, Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of Nisan, which is the first month. He was in the tomb for three days, and he rose from the grave on the 17th day. You see where I'm going? Of the first month of their religious calendar. So on this very day, the ark came to rest on Ararat. It's the same day that Jesus stepped from the tomb. See, Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross, and three days later, he conquered death, a new beginning, just like the ark. It was a new beginning for them. Verse 5, it says, then the waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountaintops became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And, kept it, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could not find nowhere to perch because, the wa- because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took, and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days again, sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in his beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then no one knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. Now, a lot of scholars will even contrast the whole raven thing, which is an unclean bird and old you know, kind of an old nature of us, a scavenger, uh, we'll land on dead animals, we'll pick, you know, on bodies. I mean, I hate to be gross, but I mean, you know, the things that are floating around and stuff. In other words, he has no problem feeding on dead things. With a dove, which is a clean bird. In other words, our new nature in Christ. And you can't find rest in decay until, it feet, until its feet can step on new ground. So you kind of have the old world versus the new world. So you can see how the, the Old Testament just, just runs amok, in a sense, with all the stuff about Christ. People go, where can you find Christ in the Old Testament? Well, you can find it all over the place. All you got to do is look for it. You look for it in the lens of what God's trying to say. And this goes right to us, that we shouldn't be comfortable in this world, that we don't have rest because we're in this world. We have rest in Christ, not in this world. Does that make sense? This world is dangerous. This world is bad. This world is, is unbelievable. My wife and I were even talking the other day. There's no way. I mean, it's like we want to take uh, Brandon up and, and show him the stuff in the Bay Area that we used to do and, and some of the fun things. But there's no way we would take him on BART right now. Why? Because there are people stabbing people all over the place on BART right now. It's crazy. 
If you go to the Bay Area, be careful. There's needles all over San Francisco. Why? Because they're more concerned about straws than they are needles all over the ground, okay? I mean, yeah, have you seen that on Facebook? I thought about that a long time ago. I should have put it on Facebook, you know? But, I mean, you know, it's just crazy. This world is not for us. We don't have rest in this world. We reach out to God for rest. And this is why the CEO and the janitor can get along in the church. You know what I'm saying? You go up to the Bay Area, you have all these, you know, you have all these big wigs that, you know, in charge of all these big companies, and they're serving right along beside the janitor that works down at the school. You know what I'm saying? Because we can have a relationship with God being in the middle. This world has no idea where we're coming from. Why people from different political viewpoints and different walks of life and different ethnicities and cultures can get along so well. Why certain churches, you know, go political, I don't know. I would not want to be up here preaching from one direction the whole time. I I just don't get that because God's supposed to bring people forward and together not drive them away. You know what I'm saying? That's why I don't believe that, you know, from the pulpit we should be preaching social justice from one side or the other because it doesn't help the gospel move forward. We cannot be comfortable in this world. If this world doesn't bother you, you need to ask yourself a very important question. Am I a Christian? I hate to put it so bluntly, but if this world doesn't bother you, you have to ask yourself if you're a Christian. Peter even says that some will come and join the church. They will even profess Christ, but, then, but, then, but they're like a clean pig that goes out into, back into the pig pen They stay around church for a while, but eventually they go back to where they are comfortable, and that is in the world, where their true nature really is. Now, I paraphrase what Peter said, but go look it up in Peter, in in the books that he wrote. We cannot go back into the world because our nature is different. We're the dove, and the dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit that's within us. Verse 13 says, By the first day... Of the first month of Noah's six hundred and first year. So I guess I shouldn't feel old at all. Six hundred and one years. The water had dried up from the earth, and Noah then removed the covering of the ark and saw the surface of the ground was dry. By the twenty seventh day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. Now, because of how it's stated and the language that was, that's used here, he's actually, there's a technical term, the way he repeats himself, uh, the, as Moses wrote down the story, the way it's repeated and all that, there's an English term for it and all that. But because of the language and all that, uh, let me give you a, you know, a chronology of, of the events here. Uh, seven days from the time Noah entered the ark before the flood began, okay? We see that in chapter 7, verse 11. So Noah entered the ark seven days later, it started to flood. Forty days and forty nights it rained. That's uh, in Genesis seven twenty. A hundred and fifty days from the time the rains, uh, uh, time of the rain until the waters started to recede, and that's in eight three. 
They came to rest on Mount Ararat on 8-4, you know, 224 days from the beginning of the flood until the mountaintops appeared. Forty days from the time the mountaintops were seen, he sent out a bird. Seven days from then until he sent out the dove. Seven more days until the second dove was sent. Seven more days until the final sending of the dove. A total of 314 days from the beginning of the flood until Noah removed the covering, okay? So 371 days from the beginning of the flood until the earth was dry. And if you go back, you have to read and, and figure out all the dates and all that. But that's how long it took until the earth was dry, 371 days. And this is when Noah uh, was told by God to take him and his family and leave the ark. When they left the ark, it, it, it marked a new beginning. All the evil, all the violence, all the corruption was gone. Peace and a world containing righteous people. Now, unfortunately, it didn't last that long. Why is that? Because they still had the sin nature from what? From Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned. So you have a righteous family that is sinful. They step from the ark into this beautiful world, and we'll, we'll get a chance to, to do the same in the end when we step into a beautiful new world, which is the new Jerusalem. In the kingdom age, when Jesus is in charge and he's on the throne, there'll be no more war, no more rumors of war, no more destruction. It'll be a righteous age. In verse 20, it says, And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And this is why he took seven of the clean animals that we talked about last week and only two of the unclean animals. And here's the thing. I read this, and the first thing I saw as I read this, I mean, I'm sitting there going, I, I'm kind of a Martha in a sense. I'm a doer. I, I don't, you know, it's like my mind's just going, okay? If that was me, I would be thinking, okay, I need to get wood. What, what part of the ark can I take apart to make a house? You know what I'm saying? Okay, where are we going to get food, wood? Okay, um, go, go fetch some of that clean water, all those things. I'm not thinking, oh, we need to do a burnt offering. You see what I'm saying? But it was a different time, a different age on this. The focus is on God here. And, you know, uh, Noah shows us that when he's arriving in the new world, we'll, we, just as we will arrive in the new world, we'll recognize God and we will worship God. God will be our priority, not food, not water, not all those little things. The focus will be on God, and that'll be a great thing. Verse 21, it says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though the every indication of the human heart is evil from childhood. So you can just tell your kids, you've been evil from childhood, right? Is that what you, okay, no, no. Don't do that. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So God was pleased with Noah, and he promised never to judge the earth, you know, the world, with water again. He doesn't say that he won't judge with something else. He just says, I won't do it with a flood. In fact, in 2 Peter 2.3, I mean 2 Peter 3.10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Revelations 21, he says, uh, you know, he'll judge. Uh, this is the point where he'll judge the fallen creature and uh, fallen creation. And he'll replace it with a new one. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautiful, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. There will be, they will be his people, and God himself will, lead, or will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Be, be, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. He who, uh, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelations 22, it says, No longer will there be a curse. The throne of God of all, uh, and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be, there will be no more night. They will, will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now it begs the question, why didn't God do this in the beginning? Why go through the fall? Why go through all the heartache, the corruption, the evil, the death, only to recreate it again. Well, this is the reason. He wants people to follow him under their own free will. He wants people that will choose him. He doesn't want to force anyone to follow him. You know, it's a hard thing with, you know, parenting, right? Because you want your kids to, to do the things you ask them to do out of their own free will. You don't want to force them. I mean, how, you know, right now, our, our son, like he, 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 Grayson, he only wants to eat yogurt. That's it. Yogurt, well, I don't say, yogurt and french fries, that's it. I mean, we, you know, it's not like I can grab him, open his mouth and stuff food in there and close his mouth and say, eat. That doesn't work, does it? That's the same thing with us. God just can't grab us and make us do the things that he wants us to do. Now, he could, but would that work? No, he wants us to choose. He's gathering those that want to be with him, those that want to serve him. No more curse on anything. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of those who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The earth is going to be liberated. We are going to be liberated in the end. Now back to Genesis 8.22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So now we start to see huge change on the earth. The water vapor is gone. Okay, Hawaii is gone. Okay, that's how I picture it, you know. 72 degrees year-round, the water temperature, it's awesome. You know, the, be the beauty of it. 
All that is gone. Now we have summer and winter. Now we have this coal and oil that are found basically everywhere on the earth. You know, it's, in, it's funny, in Antarctica, they found coal and, uh, coal and oil. Now, coal and oil, what is it produced from? Vegetations and other things that have died. Oil comes from animals under pressure, okay? The fact that they found it there means at one point it was inhabited at some point by animals and plants. The North Pole was the same way. Greenland is called Greenland for a reason, right? We, you know, we think, now it's turning a little more green, but, you know, we think of Greenland as being covered in ice, which most of it has been up to, uh, up to a point till lately. But the earth has changed now. Noah, when they left the ark, never dealt with these things before. They never knew summer and winter and, and hot and cold like they're going to have to deal with. This is all because of the canopy went away. Sunlight was diffused when it hit the water vapor. We've talked about that, but now it's not. Vegetation used to grow rapidly because there was more oxygen in the air, and it stayed in, so therefore they stayed healthier longer. All of this changed. The sunlight shined directly on the earth, and now they have, you know, weather patterns. Everything changed. Have you lived through a hurricane? Okay, I have. Have you lived through certain things, different weather patterns, tornadoes? I can remember my grandparents grabbing us and, and we're headed off to the shelter in the ground in Oklahoma because tornado was coming. You know, when the movie Twister came out, everybody was like, there's no way a tornado could be half a mile wide. Yes, there is. I've seen it with my own eyes. You come back out, you get in the car and you drive around because you're fascinated at the destruction. You're like, dude, that, that was a half a mile wide. They're having to deal with the earth that has completely changed. Henry Morris points out a few of the changes in his book. It's called The Genesis Record. The oceans were, were much more extensive. They contain all this water that were once above the earth in water vapor and locked underground somehow, and now all that water is out. The land masses are much more expansive. They've been taken over by the water. In other words, they've been separated. The thermal, you know, the thermal blanket is gone. So you have extreme temperature changes. That's why we live in a, client, a climate where you get to 105, 106, 117, God forbid. You know what I'm saying? Mountain ranges are lifted up. Some were pushed down. Before the flood, you could live anywhere. Now, there's many places humans just don't live, right? You just can't live in those places. Winds and storms are now possible. Environment that's now hostile to us. Lifespans began to decrease at this point because of all of this. Noah lived 650 years. After him, somebody lives 450 years. And he gets all the way down to the point where there's not, uh, about 120 years, and that's it. We have radiation that affects us because there's no canopy. And we age a lot quicker now. Some have even suggested that the reason why the, the tilt of the earth is, is one way that God changed the weather. If the earth is not tilted at the axis at 22 and a half degrees, the temperature around the earth would be completely even. Did you know that? Yeah, it would be even. This is a very different world. Going on in chapter 9, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. 
The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground and all the fish in the sea, and they are given into your hands. Now, this is the same thing he said to Adam and Eve. Multiply, fill the earth, you're in charge. We can chase, you know, trace all of our lineage back to Noah's son, Ham, Sham, and uh, Japheth. And for our purposes, Sham is the most important, okay? Shem or Sham, however you want to say it. Why is this? Because this is where the messianic line goes to and comes from. This is, you know, it goes from Shem to, to Abraham, and from Abraham to Isaac. And, you know, in other words, basically, uh, all of Israel is born from that, and, and Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob to the twelve patriarchs, and, and the fourth son of Jacob is Judah, and through the line of Judah, the Messiah is born. So this is the, the line that's going to be focused on throughout the Scripture from this point forward. It's the line of Shem. And since the Bible is a book of redemption, that's where the focus is. One other thing that's different um, after all of this. Now mankind became meat eaters. I like that, only because I like to eat meat. I like to smoke meat. It's beautiful. Tastes great. On the way, uh, way down, we just got back from San Diego. We went down there for a few days. And about six years ago, five, six years ago, on the way uh, back from, from San Diego, we were like sitting in traffic. You know, that's one thing that we love about we moved away from the traffic in the Bay Area, you know. Uh, we go back and we're like, oh, we, we got stores. We have grocery stores, real grocery stores. Any amens on that one at all? Nothing? Amen just means truly, okay? That's all it means, okay? Um, but, uh, you know, so we're, you know, we're hit traffic, and we're, like, sitting there for, like, an hour and a half on this one little strip. I mean, talking about, like, five miles. That's it. We're like, let's just get off and eat. And we found this, oh, this beautiful barbecue place. Well, we thought it was on a different road, and we've been looking for it for years. And we finally found it on the strip. We went there twice. Once going down and once coming back, okay? Love barbecue. We finally become meat eaters here. It says in verse 3, everything that lives on the, and moves, will, uh, moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that, has, uh, that still has its, uh, or has its lifeblood still in it. For your lifeblood, uh, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. What's, what is this talking about? Well, this is where God says in Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the creature is in the blood. If only George Washington's doctors understood this, they wouldn't have bled him when he was sick, and therefore he died. If Abraham Lincoln's doctors would have read this, they would have understood that, and they wouldn't have bled him, and he wouldn't have died so quickly. But I don't know why they didn't do that. But our life blood is, you know, our life is in our blood, right? That's why we do transfusions. Praise the Lord that, that, that you know, we were at that point because my wife would not be here today without transfusions, you know, when she gave birth to Brandon and so forth. But we need to understand that life is in the blood and the blood comes from God. God didn't want anyone eating anything that had blood in it at this point, okay? This is what they call kosher. Kosher means you only eat from clean animals, and God listed all this out in Leviticus. It also has to be killed by a certified person that's trained. 
trained in a certain way to kill an animal to make sure it didn't suffer, and I won't go into all the techniques that, that they used, but then the blood would be drained in a proper way, and they would be blessed by a rabbi and approved. So anytime you see something that says kosher on it, that means a rabbi has gone in and said, yes, whatever's going on here, it's been done the right way. We put our stamp of approval on it. And you can still find that today. You go to Israel. Uh, we went to Israel, and after we went through the, the Holocaust Museum, which is just unbelievable uh, to go through that, at the end we, we were eating and so forth. And if you wanted to eat meat and all that, that's fine. If you wanted to go get an ice cream, that's fine. But there was a line in the middle. The ice cream couldn't go on this side, and meat couldn't go on that side. Okay, you can't mix you know, dairy. I mean, there's all these different kosher rules, okay? And it kind of starts right here. But we need to understand for our point today that life is in the blood. In verse 5 it says, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting for every animal and from each, if, and from each human being too. I'll demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human bloods by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Here we see something important established in verse 6. God establishes the groundwork for human government. Part of the responsibility of human governments is to keep the peace, protecting good from evil, the weak from the strong, protecting life. If you don't have a government to do that, then you have what's called jungle law. You have anarchy, okay? And whether you like our style of government or not, it's the best government style on earth. You go to many other places, and you can see where it literally is anarchy. God provides the law. Even good, I mean, even bad government's better than no government at all. But God provides, uh, you know, provided the law, and man is supposed to live in a civilized society. Man is supposed to re uh, respect each other. And God gave governments authority to punish lawbreakers, even to the point, where it points out later in Scripture, to execute those who willfully take another's life. Before the flood, God said, don't avenge Abel by killing Cain. <clears throat> in other words, he put a mark on Cain, and he valued life so much, he says, don't, don't even touch him. Don't even try to avenge him by trying to kill him. The result was the earth was filled with violence. It's like God was showing us what would happen if you didn't have laws. Now God gives man the authority under civil government to punish those who take a life willfully. Later under Moses, he divided it under three categories. And we use these three categories today, and we use the words, one is manslaughter, the second is second-degree murder, and the first one is first-degree murder. It lays out punishments for each. God allows the government to take judgment under capital uh, punishment <coughs> when warranted. In Ecclesiastes 8.11, it says, and we're kind of living this verse right out before our eyes, you know what I'm saying? It says, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Do we see that today? You bet. If someone kills somebody, there's a trial. That's good, right? Yeah, that's good. 
if they're convicted, there's an appeal. I don't think that's bad. That's, that's good. You want to make sure, just make sure things are done properly and so forth. But then it takes 20 to 30 years for the sentence to be carried out. This has removed all fear from committing murder. I can remember as a uh, one of, it's pretty sad that I can remember this. I, I, you know, under five, there's certain things that I remember. You know how you think back to your first memories, you know. And one of the things I can remember is Halloween. Uh, I was either four and a half or five right in there. And Halloween uh, had just happened, and, and our parents are tearing through our house and stealing our candy. They're taking my candy. Why are you taking my candy? Well, it's been labeled the candy man now, but he lived a block and a half from us, and he put cyanide in a pixie stick, and he gave it to his kid, okay? He was trying to kill. I don't know why. That's just what he was doing. But all parents knew was a child died from candy. So they, you know, were going through the house taking all the candy. It wasn't until my, like, fourth or fifth year of college that this man was actually executed for what he did, Okay? that's how long it took back then. Now it's even longer before these things take place. Verse 11 in Ecclesiastes, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. So God gave government the right and the ability to say, if you take another person's life willfully, you forfeit your own life. Capital punishment becomes one of the more important things in society. And when we don't carry out capital punishment, it actually devalues human life. As a culture, we, know, you know, we no longer value life. And I believe that this you know, started in, in, with a lot of things, but it, personally, I feel it legalizing abortion. You know, it started, um, <laughs> you know, s- since the Revolutionary War, 200 years of American history, 1,200,000 military personnel have died in nine major wars in America. That's a lot. But in one year in the United States, 1.6 million babies are legally aborted. I was astonished back in, you know, 2006, 2008, people were really upset that a number of military soldiers had died uh, during the Iraq War. You know, the number is around 5,000 range. But, you know, they're, they're, they're out there protesting and all that. And, and however you feel about that, that's fine. But, but it, what I was astonished by is out of one side of the mouth, they're, they're worried about 5,000 soldiers dying. And out of the other side, they're allowing 1.6 million babies a year to be aborted. I don't, that doesn't compute to me. Life is God's gift. Treasures to be protected. Yet life is diminished in our society, and as capital punishment has slowed down, crime has risen. I read an article about a 42-year-old man that murdered his girlfriend, thought she was pregnant by another guy. He was wrong. When he was arrested, he asked if he could get community service time. (laughs) This is how far we've gotten away from God. The value of life has diminished. As life is devalued, we need capital punishment to keep fear in place. But today, some feel it's barbaric and and it should be stopped. Others will say, how can you be, you know, uh, against abortion but for the the death penalty? That is easy. I value life so much that if you recklessly take a life, you forfeit your own life. 
But the baby's done nothing, doesn't deserve punishment. That's easy to understand. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God created mankind. You know, on Facebook, there's going around, uh, they, one of the scans has actually scanned a, a, a baby moving around in a mother's womb. It's, a, it's the clearest scan that we've ever had of a baby moving in the, in the wound and stuff. And you see that and you're thinking, how can people not feel that that's a life? Now, someone can get upset and scream and holler or, or talk about the, you know, the right of a person to commit, to, uh, commit this act if they want. But for me, this part is simple also. I don't view this through the world's eyes. I don't view this through the world's eyes. I view this through God's eyes. And God doesn't want us killing babies. Period. This seems simple to me. But our society has become twisted. We got to a point where we call good evil and evil good. And one thing I've noticed that throughout the Word of God, throughout the Bible, when a nation gets to that point, it's ripe for judgment. Let's not turn our backs on God. When we do, do, you know, when we do that kind of stuff, judgment happens. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, now that I've been really harsh on this, let me also say, if you've ever gone down that route, if you've ever had an abortion, there's forgiveness just like anything else. So don't, don't think that I, you know, you know, don't walk out feeling like, you know, the shame and the guilt and all that. No, no, the Lord can take all that off. The Lord forgives us for those things. So don't, don't think that, you know, I'm like the evil dad going, no, 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 you know, I, no, 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 no. The Lord has grace. The Lord has mercy. What I'm saying is, as we move forward, we need to look at these things and say, we need to evaluate these things through God's eyes, not our own feelings. And not feelings of society, not what society says right or wrong, but through what God says is right or wrong. And the lifeblood is our blood. And it comes from God. So let's not turn our backs from God, because that's when judgment happens. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? Well, why don't we stand, and we're going to pick up there last, uh, next week, because we're out of time. Why don't we stand and uh, I will pray. And I guess since the worship team's over there, I will dismiss you. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for being able to learn through Genesis, to understand how you treated the world, how you uh, interacted with Noah and his family, and the grace that you showed through it all. That you didn't start over completely, but you left man alive because you want us to come to you. You want us to believe in you. You want us to live in your ways and your righteousness. And Lord, I, I pray that as we live here, leave here this week, that you just guide us, that you'd be there every step of the way, that some of us may be calling out, where are you, Lord? That you would show yourself to them in the right timing. Let them hold on to the hope that you are in charge, Lord, that you know what's best for our lives and that you want us to act righteously and live righteously on a daily basis. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May he bless you this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.